Thank you very much for the kind introduction, and I, I, I won't call you wrong, I'll just call you close. We're 22 years, uh, come two weeks from now, and uh, I'm, I'm literally married to the finest woman since Eve. She's all that. I'm just really, really fortunate. One of the best decisions, other than giving my life to the Lord, was convincing her to marry me. I've got seven beautiful children. My oldest is 21. My youngest is eight, five boys, two girls. Um, and there's a party in my house every day. One of my prayers and my devotion is, Lord, when I leave, please let there be a house to come home to. Uh, let it be standing when I walk through the door. Um, I am pleased to be with you. I, I was with you back in March, and it was a lot of fun. And I am excited. I, I've always had great respect for Liberty, but I am beginning to have great affection for this university uh, because of the men and the women that are involved in it, because of you all, because of my bent towards speaking to young people and inspiring them to greatness, that mediocrity need not be a part of our target area, that we really need to aspire to excellence. And any time I get an opportunity to get the ears of five to 8,000 young people, it's a joy of mine. I thank Coach McKay, who has been a long life friend to me. I thank Mr. Ray and Johnny for their hospitality and you all for coming to listen, not just out of obligation, but out of a hunger. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter eight. We're gonna to talk today about discipleship. Jesus was more interested in making sure that people followed his teaching than he was just getting them to heaven. The two things are absolutely inseparable and populating heaven ought to be one of our goals. But making sure the earth is better ain't a half bad goal either. And the earth gets better by having better people people who follow him and are willing to sacrifice their life and lay down their life for the benefit of others to make sure that they prefer others' needs above their own. And so discipleship was a major emphasis of his ministry. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. It says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. And then a scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, verse 20, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples came to him and said, Lord, permit me to first go bury my father. But Jesus said to him in verse 22, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, the disciples followed him. And behold, there, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with waves. But G Jesus himself was asleep. Verse 25, and they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Verse 26, and he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. Lord, help us as we study. You are here because you want to be here. Not just at convocation, but at liberty. It's a place not only of higher learning, but of higher discipleship. 
Leaders are to be trained here and to be deployed to the world to change it, to bring the gospel to the most corrupt places, to bring light to the most dark places. And following Christ is the best recipe we can find to producing the kind of stuff that the world is going to enjoy to eat. And here we find Jesus on the way to the cross. This passage happened probably about two years or two and a half years into his ministry. There wasn't much time for people to make plans in advance to follow him. It wasn't like the disciples who met Jesus on the sea and had a good three years to figure out who he was and what they were going to do and how their life fit into his and how his life fit into theirs. He was on his way to the cross. Even though it's early in Matthew, Matthew is not necessarily a chronological book. It's more of a, a book based on events. And so they are clumped together. And as Jesus is teaching and discipling and, 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 and healing people who have come to him, he says, it's time to go to the other side of the sea. May I say to you that it is always time to stop being where you are. That where you are might be good and it's better that you're not where you were. But where you are is not the place where you're supposed to be tomorrow. Tomorrow we're supposed to be someplace else, further down the road of figuring out why in the world God placed us on the planet. Progress ought to be a major portion of your, your psyche, that you can't stay where you are. Grateful that I'm not what I used to be. Happy, pleased, believe me, all the people around me are grateful I'm not what I used to be. In fact, some folk who used to know me are really grateful and can't believe I am what I am. That Brett is doing what? Pastoring a what? You got to be kidding me. And he's got seven kids. He didn't even want one when I was, when I was running the streets with him. And so I'm happy I'm not what I used to be. But I realize that I've got a long way to go to become what I'm supposed to be. And I'm at the age of 47, and I remember sitting in a, in a pew in a chair listening to the gospel like you all are listening today trying to figure out what am I supposed to do and why did God place me here? And I said, Lord, I, I don't know. I can't figure it all out, but I know this, that I want to follow you so close that I don't miss the exit, that I don't miss the turn. Please help me. Here Jesus was about to go to the cross six to nine months away, and some fellas had an opportunity to jump on the bandwagon to get a part of his plan. One comes and says, Lord, I want you to know I'm going to follow you wherever you lead. Where you go, I'm going to go. What you say, I'm going to do. I'm going to follow you wherever you go. Jesus tested him and said, really? Well, foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have their nets, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, I've been to seminary, and I've, I've talked to some fabulous theological teachers, and, and, and I've done my own study. I, I, I don't believe this passage has much of a reference to the fact that Jesus didn't have a home. You see, Jesus had a mama, and his mama was real special, just like every, mama's, every son's mama's special. But this mama was real special. I mean, this is Mary mama. This is the one the angel came to and said, you're going to have a baby, but you will have not known a man. This is, this is a super mama. Every good Jewish boy, with their father having passed, needed to make sure that his mama had a house. And so in Capernaum, there was a home. You remember that story? where Jesus was teaching and folks were gathered around and they couldn't get in the door and folks were being healed and everybody had come in Capernaum and, 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 and some fellas brought a fellow who was lame and, and they couldn't get in the front door and so they went on top of the roof and broke open the roof 
and let the boy down through the hole? That was Jesus' mama's house. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus and, and, and Jesus' mama and the relatives would, would come to him and say, may I please have a word with you in the middle of a sermon? You remember that story when it says your mother and brothers are outside and like to talk to you? The reason being, she was just going to ask him, don't destroy my house today. Please, I, I beg you, I, it costs a little money to put the roof back on. Please, if you're going to do a miracle, step outside. He had a home. It wasn't a reference to the fact that Jesus was homeless. This was not some kind of credibility to the issue of whether Jesus was poor. Any man who's got a treasury wasn't poor. I'm not saying Jesus lived an opulent life, but he was well provided for by his father. But what he was referring to most, I believe, was the fact that I'm about to go someplace and everybody thinks something is going to happen to me that's going to benefit them. I'm going down to Jerusalem, and people have already lauded me as being the Savior and the Messiah, but their version of the Savior and and Messiah is different than the one that the Father has scripted for me. They want me to unseat Herod, that old fox. They want me to kick out Pontius Pilate. They want me to unseat, hopefully, all of Rome and set up this utopian society, this Solomonic kingdom, as in the days of of, of yore, that that is going to fix all of our political and sociological problems. And and, and, and the reason they want to jump on the bandwagon is because just like in the former political uh, process where we just had an election, folk want a cabinet seat. They want to be secretary of something. They want to work in the campaign and they want to say, I've been there with you. When you get to your power place, make sure I've got mine. So I'm going to let them know something. That the people to whom I've been sent won't receive me. Meaning foxes have holes. Birds got some place where they can lay their stuff and, and, and call a home. But I've been sent to a people and it's not my home. They won't receive me. I have no place to lay my head of authority because when I go down to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me. Oh, by the way, how you like me now? You want to follow me now? There's no place that's going to receive me. There's no cabinet position for you, boy. You're going to have to come and sacrifice with me. How you like me now? The sad thing about this portion is that we don't hear another word from the guy who said, I'll follow you wherever you go. What he meant was, I'll follow you wherever you go to power, not to pain. Suffering was on the way. And we know that even the closest of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, fled. They couldn't stand it. When we talk about discipleship, suffering is a part of who we are called to do, be and do. Can't get around it. Most of the world, as, as far as Christians go, suffer incredibly. We have estab- helped establish some churches in the Middle East, in Muslim countries. And we recently had some of our pastors imprisoned. And for three months they were tortured beyond what is mentionable in a sermon. They were released because of international pressure. But the way many of these countries do what they do is they release you even though they consider you uh, having done a crime worthy of death because you've renounced Islam and now confessed Christ as Lord. They release you because of political pressure, but two weeks later, somebody mugged you and they found you dead in an alley. That's the way they work their execution process. And so we had to pray. We had to pray. As they were coming back... And they, they somehow got, got not only released from jail, but they got 
got exports, they got visas to come out of the country. They were trying to contact some of the church members. And I'm telling you, God's doing something wonderful in the Muslim world. I mean something wonderful. Things are happening and you can't report about them all the time. You can't give names, countries, places, people. You can't do anything. But it's a wonderful thing. And he was trying to contact some of the believers there who were a part of his church. And as he was doing so, he found it hard to contact them. Now, he, he said, maybe they didn't want to respond to me because their phones were tapped. And they knew they were being, uh, being watched and under surveillance. But they were concerned that some of them had fallen away from the faith because of the persecution they saw their pastor go through. And he came to us as leaders in our ministry and said, you know, it made us recheck our foundation. Are we preaching such a weak gospel that people are afraid of death? What's wrong with the way we're training our people? And all of us comfortable Christians who live in this wonderful America sat there and said, uh, wow, we have a hard time just getting people to come to church. We forget that suffering is a part of our Christian life. Are you willing to follow Christ like this? Not just to the destiny of your job and employment, not to the destiny of who you might marry and the wonderful life you're going to have with your family, but are you willing to follow Christ when he says, people aren't going to regard me as much anymore, and, and, and probably the same lot I have, you're going to have. Can you follow me like that? Can you follow him out of comfort? Secondly, can you follow him out of wrong expectations? A fellow comes to him and says, Lord, I'm going to follow you too, but, but Lord, p- p- permit me first to go bury my daddy, and then I'll come be with you. Jesus, this, this sweet, kind, gentle, you know the picture you grew up in in the Baptist church with the lamb on his shoulders, smiling all the time, says, let the dead bury their own dead. You come and follow me. What happened to the depth of compassion? Where was the sensitivity that we all believe Jesus had with respect to somebody who had just lost their father? I'll follow you, but let me first go bury my daddy. Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh, come now. Well, the guy was not saying that his dad had just died. It was an old Hebrew colloquialism that said, I will follow you, but let me first get my inheritance. Let me first make sure I get mine, and then I'll come and be with you. Meaning this, daddy hadn't died. But see, if I follow you and I get up and leave the family business right now, if I leave the farm, if I leave the the, the tanning business, whatever his dad was into, he's going to write me out of the will because you don't have great favor among all the politicos today. The people who are in power don't like you. There's no place for me to, 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 to find some real authority there, and I might just get written out of the will. So I'd rather put him in the grave, get what's coming to me, and then follow you. Are we willing to not get what we think we deserve to follow Christ? Are we willing to be led out of our comfortable and our wrong expectations about how we need to be provided for? It is vital that we understand it is never me first. Let me first. It's never me first. It's always God first. Y'all say amen here? Yeah, that helps a brother if you can just every once in a while give me a gratuitous amen. Even if you don't like me very much, just say something. 
Thank you very much. Thirdly, it says that they got into the boat. Jesus had already said, we're going to the other side. It says they got into the boat and they began to sail. He not only calls us out of comfort and wrong expectations, but he calls us into fellowship with one another. Discipleship can be best expressed and realized as you are working out your relationships one with another. Can you be in the same boat with somebody and not let an offense cause you to jump out? Can you sail with, with anybody long enough to let people know that you are his disciple? What did Jesus say? They will know that you are my disciples by your what? Love for one another. There ought to be something supernatural about the way you treat your brother and sister, the person that's sitting next to you. It ought to be something a little different than what the world does. The world has disposable relationships. As soon as you hurt me, you violate my trust, I'm gone. The most significant relationships we've got are marriage. And half of the people that say I do, say I don't. They walk away from stuff, mess up people's lives. Many of you are a part or grew up in homes that were broken. It hurts you as kids. I grew up in a broken home. I had to figure out how in the world a home is supposed to work, and I had to make it up as I went trying to pull scriptures out, look at other people because I didn't have an example in my own house. Relationships are to be the microcosm of how the kingdom is to work on the earth. And God sticks with us. Oh, I'm glad God doesn't treat us like we treat one another. We'd never have any sense of well-being. In fact, most of us have sinned so much and violated his trust so much and crossed over so many lives that this, this university be empty. I mean, nobody here, not because there weren't Christians to attend, but because we'd all be dead. Judgment would fall upon us if God were to treat us like we treat one another. He said to every one of those disciples, get in the boat. Now, we know that these brothers didn't like one another very much. James, John, Peter, yeah, they were in business together as fishermen, but they had their issues with one another. I mean, Jesus says that after the resurrection, he tells Peter what kind of death he's going to die in John chapter 21. He says, do you love me? Peter says, yes, I have great affection for you. He says, do you love me? Yes, I have great affection for you. Do you love me? Yes, I have great affection for you. Why do you keep asking me? Because you ain't answered my question. Every time I say love, I'm talking about agape commitment. Every time you say affection, you're talking about brotherly kinship. Two different things. He said, I want you to know. As you begin to lead my people, there are going to be folks that come your way and lead you in a way you don't want to go, signifying the kind of death he was going to die. And lo and behold, Peter looks at him and says, well, what about him? How's he going to die? Meaning John, what about him? Why do you want to bring me in this, say John? I mean, if you have to die a certain death, that doesn't mean I got to. Like, Peter, you want me to go out the same way you went out? Uh-uh, uh-uh, Who's going to be the greatest? Tell us. They were fighting with one another about who was going to be in charge when they got to what they thought was going to be their cabinet positions. They were always arguing with one another about jockeying for position or who had the most to say or who said what or who did what. 
It wasn't like they were best friends. Jesus said, get in the boat together because your relationships are going to be some of the most important things that you have as an inheritance. Paul said it this way in Ephesians chapter 1. I pray that the eyes of your understanding might be enlightened, that you might know why in the world God called you, the hope of your calling, and that you might understand what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance among the saints. There is a tremendous inheritance in the person sitting next to you. And the enemy wants to do everything he possibly can to rob you of that inheritance. And so he'll bring up a petty little offense. He'll bring up something that that hurts you. And I promise you, one guarantee there is on the planet, if you stick with people long enough, they will hurt you. People are in my church, I tell them all the time, we do our best to try to be the best people we possibly can, but I can guarantee you one thing. I can't guarantee you we're going to love you perfectly. I can't guarantee you we're always going to be there for you. I can't guarantee you we're going to be the best church around, but I can guarantee you you will be hurt. At some point, somebody's going to do the wrong thing to you. What are you going to do when that happens? Most folk get up and leave. They jump out of the boat. Jesus called us to be together. And there's something about Christians that ought to figure out what it's like to get on the other side of the cross. To take an offense and to take a relationship to the cross, take it through the cross, and find out how much stronger it is on the other side. The benefit that we have of being believers is that our tool belt is full of all the stuff, the fixed stuff. Ah, see, God gave it to you. See, when somebody gives an offense to you and hurts you, You've got this thing called forgiveness. You get to pull it out and work on the relationship. Forgiveness is a wonderful gift. It is a thing that reties you to the other person so that they are no longer separate from you and feel like they are indebted to you. You release them from the obligation of paying you back what you think they now owe you. And so now the relationship can be based on love again. But listen, we all love forgiveness when we need it. And we think it's a gift that needs to flow to you, but it's not a gift that needs to flow through you. And God gives it as a gift that is intended to be given away. We might give away money. We might give away uh, iPods, different things that we enjoy, but we rarely ever give forgiveness. Jesus said, hop into the boat. Can we in discipleship hang in here with one another? I've got a church in Washington. It's a, I, I, I love my church. I'm, I'm telling you, I just, it's a great congregation. It may not be the best, but it's mine. And, 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 and they, they seem to like me in that they show up every Sunday, which is wonderful. But the great thing about my church is that when I go in on Sunday morning, it looks a whole lot like this, except more so. Meaning, they're black folk. And white folk, we're about 60% African-American, 35% white, the rest Asian and Latino. And so when you walk into our church, most, most churches are characterized, which, what kind of church are you? Well, we are an African-American church. We are a Korean church. We are a, a, a European-eccentric white church. But, but when, when you come into our church, you can't tell what we is. You have no idea. My staff is integrated. Listen, my family's integrated. When we adopted, we adopted a little white girl. Can't say it was on purpose, but we did it. The woman came to us. She was 16 years old. She was Asian. 
The daddy was of European extraction. He was 15. Said, could anybody in your church adopt our baby? My wife and I looked at him and said, well, at least the baby, you know, look Asian. Came out with blonde hair, blue eyes. God just threw us a curve. I mean, just take that. You believe in reconciliation? Here! We've had her for 15 years. Brought her home from the hospital. She is a greater blessing to us than we could have ever been to her. When we talk about relationships, gosh, I'll share with you a little story, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to go over. In the area of ethnic relations, I, all my life I've been involved in healing the rift between black and white folk. We broke the color barrier in my neighborhood when I grew up. My, my, my father moved us into white suburbia in Kansas City, Kansas. Uh, we weren't given the red carpet treatment. Um, they, they egged our house. They destroyed our cars. They called me every word in the book. I fought all the time. And although I look bigger on screen than I am in person, I'm only 5'8 and 3 quarters. I like the 3 quarters part. It, it helps. <laughs> and so I fought all the time, and most of them I lost. But my parents never let me become bitter or angry. I broke the color barrier in my school. It was a difficult time in 1966. And God plopped me in that environment to understand how to speak white, how to think white, and yet live in a black home. And so I could be in both worlds at the same time. A funny little thing God did to me. Um, Those of you who are looking at, you now know I'm black, don't you? (laughs) Just checking to make sure. Um, but 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 uh, but I'm th- these two brothers down here who had the AIDS AIDS stuff on stop AIDS it's just great. I'm not I'm not as dark as they are. I'm latte. <laughs> Doesn't make me any less black now. Don't y'all go thinking stuff. But I'm latte. The reason I'm latte is because my ancestors, my my, my great great grandmother, was a slave, and some slave master had her. And they had a child on both sides of my family, my mother's side and my dad's side, six generations back. So that makes me who I am. Well, I always had some issues with the folk who were slave masters. Most black folk in America do. Not much compassion for them. I didn't hate them. I just didn't think much about them. Until my fifth child came out. Number five, name is Tellus. He's 13 now. He came out with as light skin as any of y'all white folk, and blue eyes. Now, that'll make a black brother look at his woman and say, huh? Huh? You're going to have to help a brother out. How long did the mailman stay? You have a conversation with him? Fair skin, blue eyes, don't run in my family. I took that child and realized this. As I embraced him after he came out of the womb, that I was embracing my slave master from 1863. And I thought, I need to, I, I can't hate. 
I can't have any bitterness against my own. And God, you know, God just, he let him, the Lord let that boy keep his blue eyes for two years. They're brown now. But for those of you who, you know, you, you, you people who are European extraction, all y'all come out with blue eyes. That's the way y'all white folk go. But black folk, we don't do that. We come out with brown hair. We only have just, it's brown hair, brown eyes. That's it. There's no variety here. We don't get red, brown, strawberry blonde. We don't go that way. We got a couple options. That's it. Brown and browner. So it shocked me, but it began a further and deepening work in my life in the area of reconciliation. Can we live together? Can we stay in the same boat? My staff is integrated. I got white folks that are part of my staff that carry my briefcase. My youth pastor, who is fabulous, attended university, graduated from here, Corey Bendix, sitting over there. He drove me down today and considers it a privilege. And we don't even think about color anymore. It's not that, that, that it's not important because it is. Because God made variety. We look at color. We notice color because God made it that way. It just doesn't matter. It just makes no difference. Can we live in the same boat? Can we be in relationship with one another and make a difference in this world so that the world will know that we are his disciples by our unusual love for one another? <laughs> Lastly, I got two minutes. It says the storm came. And do you know Jesus led them into the storm? He knew the storm was coming. It says it came up in a hurry. Can you be led into the storm of life? the fellows that were holding the AIDS signs. Our church has intentionally gone into Africa into the storm of the AIDS crisis and established five orphanages. One in Kenya, four in South Africa. We're doing everything we possibly can to help. In those orphanages, we've got about 150 kids. 68 in, in Kenya. Smaller numbers in Africa because they have rules whereby you can only put 12 in a house. And you have to have two child care providers for every 12 people you put in one house. And so we can't expand as fast as we would like because it's, it's significantly more expensive. But we are running into the storm. And we are believing that in the midst of it, we will hear Jesus say, shh. See, the storm will make you think you're dying. It'll deplete you of resources. You'll do everything you possibly can to bail. You'll, you'll see the water coming in heavily, realizing our bailing's not working near as fast as the water's coming in. And you know what Jesus is doing? He's sitting there sleeping. He's in the hall. He's not concerned about this storm at all because with one word, he can quiet the whole thing. But he is testing your faith to see how much you can endure through it and trust him in it. And so the disciples come to him and they're at the end of themselves because they've given all they possibly can. Don't you care we're perishing? He gets up and he says, hush. Now, our version of hush is, shh. And the words of Christ became so weighty that even the waves stopped. Waves don't stop until they hit the shore because there is nothing to stop them. Yet the words of Christ were so weighty that it stopped. The wind stopped and it blew 
all pun intended, them away. Can we be led into the storm of difficulty whereby we feel discomfort, not just the people we're ministering to, we feel it, and yet trust him in the midst of it, that he is able to quiet it with a word, and we are able to endure with the difficulty in this world, the sin that is in this world, until Christ be glorified and all men come to the knowledge of the truth. Can we be led out of comfort? I'll follow you wherever you go. Foxes have holes. I have no place to lay my head. Can we be led out of wrong expectations and not say me first? Can we be led with one another? This is what discipleship is. Can we follow Christ into the storm? If you do these four things, you'll change the world in a hurry. Let's pray. God in heaven, please bless these dear people. Inspire them to be great every moment of the day that today they can be a little bit better than they were yesterday. They can further the kingdom a little bit better, a little bit further than they did yesterday. Have your way with these precious saints. In Jesus' name, amen.